0: Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor, Matt Goldberg, and with me is deputy editor, Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today, we'll be doing a podcast devoted entirely to the films of Martin Scorsese.
1: The cinematic films of Martin Scorsese. Actually,
0: we're going to go through each film and tell you whether it's cinema or not
1: cinema. (laughs) That's fair.
0: Um no, so but I do want to make I do want to start off with a clarification cuz Scorsese has a very big and diverse career. We will not be talking about the short films. We will not be talking about the documentaries. We will not be ta- so because there's just there's too many. Like that that's too much. I can't I can't, you know, drop in and be like, "Hey, let me let me tell you what's up with uh gosh, uh what George did,
1: Harrison and material living in the material world, yes. which is like a four and a half hour documentary. Or
0: like a letter to Elia. Like I can't, or shine a light. I can't do it. We, there's, we'd be here for hours and hours and hours. We're just going to focus on the features. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's already a lot. So the way we're going to do it is just going to go chronologically. We'll also note that like some of these movies we haven't seen. In fact, the first one we're going to bring up, we haven't seen is who's that knocking at my door. Um, which is sort of put Scorsese on the on the radar of Roger Corman for Boxcar Bertha, but I haven't seen Who's That Knocking at My Door, and I assume
1: you haven't seen it either. No, but I think it's on Netflix. Is um... it? It's... I think th- I know Netflix put like a handful of his older ones. Maybe mm-hmm. it was just Boxcar Bertha and Alice doesn't live here anymore. Um, but yeah, the the um, this one I have not seen, and uh, I don't honestly know too much about it. I mean, I know kind of the rough. I mean, the, kind of the idea behind this podcast is we're going to go through the trajectory of Scorsese's career and why he made certain films at certain times. Um, but I, I'll be honest, I don't know a ton about. Um, you know the beginnings of his film career.
0: Yeah, it's well. You know, I mean, he was an NYU student, um, and he, you know, went to the Tisch School of the Arts. I, I have seen like his short film, "The Big Shave," which is actually real. It's very short, but it's really good. It's about Vietnam, um, of all things, but it's about a guy who just keeps shaving, and the more he shaves, the bloodier he gets. Um, which is not a bad little parable if you're, you know, making a film about Vietnam. Um, but the, uh, yeah, it, it that's sort of like where he, he really starts, he shows a knack for understanding cinema, but he has sort of, what, what sort of sets Scorsese apart in his early days is his work is knowledgeable, but kind of gritty. Uh, Gritty in a way that's really taking advantage of the new cinema of the late 60s and early 70s, part of the second golden age of cinema. And he has a real knack for bringing his own voice into that and taking advantage of this sort of these shifting uh, mores and the the fall of the production code that allows Scorsese to make the kind of movies that weren't getting made just a decade earlier.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I have not seen Who's That Knocking At My Door. <laughs> yes. Uh,
0: but I, I did recently watch Boxcar Bertha, and I talked about it on a Recently Watched uh, in an earlier episode. And it's a very Corman film. It's just, it's very much like he wanted to make kind of like a... And, and that's not a dis... You know, Corman, his movies make... You know, he knows the kind of movies he wants to make and, and more power to him. And he gave a start to a lot of young filmmakers like Martin Scorsese. And Boxcar Bertha is... Martin Scorsese trying to kind of ignore his own voice and his own interests to make what is essentially kind of a a sleazy Bonnie and Clyde ripoff. Like, that's kind of what Boxcar Bertha is. Um, there's very little of Scorsese in the film, but I think what's interesting about Boxcar Bertha is then it kind of spurs Scorsese to make a more personal film, and that's how you get to Mean Streets. Which I have seen. Yeah, let's talk a little. Uh-huh. Let's talk about Mean Streets. Mean Streets feels like the uh, the urtext of Scorsese.
1: Yeah, it feels like a uh, like you know you hear uh, like you know Damien Chazelle made the short film Whiplash before he made the feature length film Whiplash. Mean Streets feels like the um, like the precursor to uh, Scorsese's gangster films later on
0: right yeah the plot follows you have Robert De Niro is kind of the straight man oh I'm sorry Harvey Keitel is the straight man Robert De Niro is 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 his buddy Johnny who's kind of the fuck up um and sort of that sort of tough interplay between the two and you can definitely tell with Mean Streets Scorsese is drawing from his own experiences not not a direct one-to-one narrative but these are the kind of people he grew up around these are this was the kind of world he grew up in um this, these these are these are the things that inform his life, and it's it's an interesting life too. Because one of the things I find really captivating about Scorsese, and we'll come back to this later in the podcast, is that Scorsese um, at one point considered becoming a Jesuit priest, um, and that religion, especially the and not just religion, but Catholicism, is such a heavy influence in in Scorsese's work, and that sort of melding of these different sort of things where you have you know, the gritty crime of the streets, but you also have this heavy Catholicism. And then there's also Scorsese kind of comes of age with, you know, new rock and roll and that kind of music and personality also influences his work. You know, we look today, it's like, you know, the, today's filmmakers are just like, I read every epi- every issue of X-Men. And I'm like, that's not knowledge. You know, it's like, that's a thing. That's an influence. But it's what's interesting about Scorsese is how, is how these different sort of influences intersect to create a, a kind of new voice in cinema for him. He's not just, um, he is an auteur very clearly early on who has his own things to say. And I think that makes him a really captivating presence
1: yeah i think that's a good point i mean scorsese's influences were not i mean he he certainly had cinematic influences but uh you know he wasn't pulling from like source material he was pulling from his own life and the things that he cared about which were you know religion and this i mean he he tells the story all the time about being a young kid who was very asthmatic and he got sick a lot and so he had to spend a lot of time indoors but he grew up in a really dangerous neighborhood in new york city so he saw a bunch of shit on the streets essentially um What's most striking to me about Mean Streets, uh, I think, is the, the how early on he his visual language uh, comes across. Like, the, um, the cinematography is really striking and really visceral and kind of violent. Um, and even the editing style, even though Th- Thelma Schoolmaker didn't uh, edit this film in particular. Yes, Jack. I know. <laughs> <laughs> He's getting to it. Yeah. <laughs> um, But uh, yeah, it's just, it's so interesting. I mean, Mean Streets came out in 1973. This uh, was seven years before, you know, Raging Bull um, and years before Taxi Driver, uh, which feel pretty fully formed. uh, And we'll get to those in terms of his visual style. But like, you know, this being his second feature film um, or third feature film, I'm sorry, uh, his style and language is right there. Like you can see it,
0: right? You know, and and he, he, it's it's interesting to see like you know he's a contemporary of someone like Spielberg, but it's interesting to see how their relative their their different up and they're both people who just they loved movies and movies had a huge impact on him. But it's interesting to see how their own personal lives were sort of put them on diverging paths in terms of the kind of movies they made. Whereas Scorsese makes more gritty adult films uh Spielberg comes from a more suburban kind of you know upbringing and of course you know Spielberg's dealing with divorce and you know his his own baggage but it's interesting to see sort of those environmental factors shape the kind of films that a person makes when they also when they have the talent to realize that vision
1: yeah for sure um uh, you know it, it was a it was a club it was Scorsese De Palma Coppola George Lucas Steven Spielberg uh who am I forgetting feel like there was one more in that in that kind of inner circle but these directors were all like buddies they were all making movies around the same time uh you know infamously george lucas screened star wars for these guys and de palma was like fuck this shit (laughs) de palma was like i don't understand it i don't like it walked out um but they were all just kind of like brutally honest with each other about the films that they were making and and you know kind of showed each other stuff which i i just find really fascinating like you, you know there are like some i mean i guess Today's version of that would be the the filmmakers who are pretty intense about like shooting on film versus digital. So like Nolan and Edgar Wright and Steven Spielberg. Um, but uh, it's it's fascinating that these guys who literally shaped how cinema would be uh, throughout the '70s and beyond uh, were all friends and showing each other their work and stuff.
0: Yeah, no, they was sort of. I mean, they were sort of the 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 brat pack of, of directors. They were the next generation and they were all kind of coming up together. Yeah. Um, so after, after mean streets, we go to Alice doesn't live here anymore, which I have not seen <laughs> nor, nor have I seen the TV series. It's bond Alice. I thought you had seen this one. For some I own reason, it. I, I own it. I bought it like at like a, I bought it used for like $3 on DVD and I still haven't watched it yet. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's one of the because, uh, and that's kind of why I've struggled with the couple of blind spots I haven't seen in Spielberg's filmography. Like always, it's like it's a, and, and I don't think Alice doesn't, doesn't live here is on the level of always, but when there are so many others that seem so more pressing to get to, um, it's kind of tough. That's the, the story. Thing, like I, I feel like I've seen the top tier and mid
0: tier Scorsese, and yeah. that's no no disrespect to Alice doesn't live here anymore, but like between the two, it's like okay, I know I need to I, I need to see you know Mean Streets. Do I need to see New York, New York? <laughs> and yep. like, to me, like that's the, that's a deep cut, deep cut. Alice is kind of on the, Alice is a mid one because it is Ellen Burstyn and Chris Christopherson who were very big stars in the seventies. Like that, I'm not saying Alice doesn't live here is unimportant. It's just, I, I, I just haven't gotten around to it. It's on me. It's not the film. It's on me.
1: Yeah. I mean, the story is Ellen Burstyn is a widow who's traveling cross-country with her son uh, trying to find a better life. And the story I like about this one is that uh, when Ellen Burstyn was was, uh, asked to star in it, she told Scorsese she had seen his other films and she didn't think he understood, understood anything about women and didn't really know why he wanted to make this film and, or why he wanted her to be a part of it. And he said, you're right, that's why I want you to be a part of it. And uh, from my understanding, it was very close collaboration with Ellen Burstyn. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been a knock on Scorsese's career is that he doesn't, uh, you know, not dealing with female characters too often. Um, and this is one of the few, and, and that's, uh, that's I assume, reason to, to check it out. So.
0: Yeah, I would say I would say so. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I wouldn't say like I wouldn't say necessarily like Scorsese's work is is openly misogynistic. No, um, as much as he just doesn't. It, it, his he his work is more concerned with the lives of men, yeah. um, and not to always say and, and and frequently condemns those men. I don't think the thing about Scor- I don't think Scorsese is like these men are tortured and therefore deserve our love. I think he is very critical of a lot of his male characters and doesn't see them as just because they're protagonists they're not necessarily his heroes
1: yeah which brings us to the next which brings us to taxi Driver, (laughs)
0: um which i think is is is, uh this was on our essential 100 list um i think it's such an incredible film um and i think one of the reasons it makes it incredible is that it sort of you know the the New York it inhabits of the 19 of the mid 1970s is a very different New York than what we have today the the you know New York is more i would say diversified and has different enclaves but the 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 New York of Taxi Driver is very gritty and dark and dirty and that's the way it was like that that is Scorsese just picturing that basically just this is reality and the the conflict is is what do you have a guy what you know, what happens when you throw a sociopath into the middle of it and who thinks he's the hero of the story? And it's really fascinating and very disturbing.
1: What's interesting about this film and uh i guess a number of his films but there's another one in particular that uh we'll get to later on uh is that it's kind of the retweets do not equal endorsements of movies uh there is this interpretation that the film is glorifying the violence of travis bickle just because it is told from his point of view um and that's i think what makes scorsese such an interesting filmmaker is that he doesn't hold the audience's hand he uh he kind of leaves it on you to make your judgments of these characters. And he, through the visual language is making subtle judgments of these characters, but you don't have it in the dialogue or you don't have, uh, you know, outright condemnation uh, sometimes for some of these characters. And, because he is so, I think thematically dialed in. Uh, I mean, Taxi Driver is a fever dream. I, I mean, you go to that score, you look at the cinematography with the fog, and everything's kind of uh, rushing together, and then to the iconic ending, which some claimed to have claimed is a uh, you know a dream uh, that's happening in his head. Um, it's it's a weird movie. It's a very weird movie, but I think that Scorsese has very much has a very strong thematic handle and a strong take on what, uh, uh, what it means. And, um, like, is Travis Bickle a bad dude? Yes, absolutely. He's a bad guy. Um, but this is a story that's told from his point of view. So you're going to get it, uh, from his point of view. And it's up to you to kind of make those connections to understand that, you know, again, retweets do not equal endorsements.
0: Right. Exactly. Um, you know that the thing is is like you know there's the iconic moment of you know you talking to me you talking to me and you know you can you can see that in a heroic framing but it's not it's a it's a madman looking for murder and he, basically the thing about Travis Bickle is he's looking for provocation he's looking for provocation to wipe the filth from the streets and he just needs that little push and That's sort of what the film is just sort of headed towards. Um, And it's just the fact that it frames him as the hero in term, not in his own mind, because it's from his perspective, you know, it's a delicate balance. But I also feel like this is a kind of movie made for adults who can handle like, oh, I'm not supposed to necessarily root for this guy, but it's fascinating to see where he's coming from. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. Um and then so after Taxi RV, you moved to Scorsese's musical New York New York which I haven't seen. Um <laughs> and has not been well particularly well received. Um it does have its defenders but um I have not seen New York New York.
1: No and it seems like this is a pretty down period in in Scorsese's life. Uh this is, this is Scorsese on Coke. Um after Taxi Driver, and, and I think Scorsese has said he and both, Bo, like, he and Paul Schrader, the, the writer, were kind of pouring a lot of themselves into Taxi Driver. Mm-hmm. Paul Schrader, for sure. Uh, a lot of his anger and resentment. Um, and I think that's why that film is so Also talented.
0: heavily religious Paul Schrader.
1: Yes, yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, and the iconography throughout uh, Scorsese's career and in, and in films like Taxi Driver is very striking. Um, and I think just another thing that makes him more, like, it's just I don't know. I don't want to diverge, but it, it's so much more interesting to me to see a filmmaker working out religion and faith through iconography and symbolism in films rather than a filmmaker who like really likes X-Men and is putting like X-Men symbols in their movies, you know? Um, no, I think you're because I think
0: faith. I mean, the thing about faith and religion is that it's thousands of years old, it gets to the core concept of where we exist in the universe and, you know, and our relationships with, you know, morality and, you know, it's, it's heavier, it's just heavier stuff and it takes, and it doesn't have any easier answers and you have to grapple with it. Whereas, you know, I think the, the rising of fandom as religion is problematic. And I'm sure there are there, there are some atheists in the crowd being like, religion's its own kind of fandom. And I'm like, yes, you're very interesting. We'll all be very wowed at your seventh grade, you know, presentation. Um, but I'm sorry. You know, the, the, you, you, to, you can't ignore history and theology and the fact that those are far more complicated than did Wolverine always have bone claws. <laughs> <laughs> but did he, though? But did he, though? All right. Um you know, it's I, like I said. I won't, we won't talk about the documentaries. I will just quickly say, "The Last Waltz" is awesome. Um, have you seen "The Last Waltz"? I have not. What's that one about? It's a documentary about the the band, the band. That's their name. Oh, that's right. That's and right. it's really like it's like the music is so good, but it's also like everyone is on coke and not even <laughs> really trying to hide it that well. which makes it super entertaining but it's sort of like these kind of flawed people making this beautiful music together so it is like it's technically a concert film but it's it's a really well-made film it's really well done i I recommend the last waltz
1: well and uh speaking of drugs that's that's uh, you know reportedly is uh that's how scorsese came to direct raging bull um you know he had been friends with Uh, De Niro and De Niro had read an autobiography of Jake LaMotta and had tried to get Scorsese to direct it for years. And he said he didn't have any interest in it, had no idea how to direct a boxing movie. And it was only after Scorsese was like in a hospital from a drug overdose that he was like, "Okay, if you care so much about this, um, you know, let let me take a stab at it. And uh, Raging Bull was
0: born. Yeah. Raging Bull, black and white boxing film. I mean, from a craft perspective, Raging Bull is is Scorsese just taking his game to an entirely different level. I mean, these boxing scenes are, they're like ballet. I mean, they're, and they're some of the best work. I forget who the cinematographer is on raging bull. Um, Uh,
1: Michael Chapman,
0: Michael Chapman. It is just astounding what they did. Um, but at the end of it you also have like a story like a kind of a toxic masculinity story this sort of Jake Lamada as this destructive per- person who's destroying the relationships in his life destroying himself destroying his body and then you know as the film famously closes out that's entertainment <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> you know i uh, i have a hard time with reading bull i mean technically it's it's an astounding film uh, De Niro gives it an incredible performance, but it's also just a really hard to watch. It movie. is a hard
0: to watch film. It is like, it's not, it doesn't have the breeziness of a good fellas. I'll put it that way.
1: No. And just watching him like beat his wife and everything. It's just, it's, it's rough. It's rough. It's supposed to be rough. Yes. But
0: it's, it's really, it's a, it's, you don't, you don't pop on raging bull to just chill out with it. I'll put it that way
1: yeah and i remember seeing it for the first time when i had because it it was after i discovered taxi driver and you know taxi driver is really compelling and and is disturbing in its own ways um but then i was like "Ooh, raging bull this is the other classic that scorsese made let me check this one out and i was like oh oh this is rough (laughs) oh dear (laughs) (laughs) oh no oh man and it's very good i mean it's uh it got nominated for a ton of oscars um it one best actor for De Niro, best editing for Thelma. Um, I forgot what it lost to that year for best picture, but I think it ordinary was... people. Oh, to that's Robert right.
0: Redford. It was the first of two times he would lose to an actor making a big directorial <laughs> film,
1: a big director. Future drama. president, Robert Redford. Yes.
0: So yes, that's what he lost to. Um, <laughs> that's right. So, but then in 1982, uh, he follows it up with the king of comedy. Uh, which was not well-received in its time. It nope. was not a film that people really were were understanding. And time has definitely been very kind to the king of comedy in terms of people coming around being like, oh, I see what you're doing. I see yeah. what this is. This is very good. And what it is, is it's a guy who isn't funny, thinking, like, just daydreaming about being a celebrity and going to criminal lengths to become so. And this obsession with celebrity... Um, I think especially as we, as we head into the 1980s, I mean, uh, uh, you know, perfectly timed, you know, with a Reagan, Reagan presidency, uh, you know, you have an entertainer now becoming president and you have this, uh, you have uh, Rupert Pumpkin, uh, Pumpkin uh, sort of thinking he's kind of entitled to this stardom, but doesn't want to do the work for it. And it's really a, a fascinating feature.
1: It's really interesting, and I think it's it's showing. I mean, because at this point, you know, you had, we had seen Mean Streets and Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, so it, he was kind of experimenting with his cinematic style throughout those films. Uh, and I think King of Comedy, it's a more quote unquote uh, like flat picture, more straightforward visually. It's not as uh, it doesn't have those flourishes that uh, Taxi Driver does, but it is hitting on this on similar. Um, kind of satirical or uh, like kind of edgy and clever ideas with the visual language of the story you're when you're cutting into Rupert Pupkin's day, daydreams it's not a slow dissolve it's not you know softly the the language of the film is not telling you you were in his daydream it's a it's a cut just like a normal cut would be in the film but that's because it's all from the perspective of Rupert Pupkin so that's the way his his head works that's you know, the way he's seeing the world is he's just clicking into these things that don't exist and aren't real. Um, and that's stuff that I mean, playing around with editing like that and playing around with, uh, you know, using the visual language of cinema in really uh, motivated and sometimes aggressive ways without uh, offering you know, obviously, rangeables is in black and white. And then when I think of Taxi Driver, I think of uh, kind of like the fog and then kind of the haze mm-hmm. uh, without doing that, like a more clear picture um, from a cinematography perspective. I think I think it was just really smart. And I think he was kind of ahead of the curve on that point, because it looks like a fairly straightforward film if you're just looking at it.
0: It does. But like when you start getting into the editing and sort of the shot composition, you have sort of a more it, it's. It's a really interesting way for Scorsese to once again explore delusion, like a a delusional personality without just repeating Taxi Driver. And I really commend him for that. Yeah, for sure. Um, And then you get sort of the madcap weird comedy of After Hours. Um,
1: Which is kind of insane. Yeah.
0: (laughs) After Hours is a weird – it's a film I need to revisit because I watched it gosh, about 10 years ago. And I was like, what is this? What am I watching?
1: (laughs) So I watched it for the first time recently. Mm -hmm. uh, And I learned that uh, the reason he got it made is that he was trying to get Last Temptation of Christ made, and he couldn't. Like, the studios just would not budge. And this was his passion project. This was the film he most wanted to do, and no one would let him do it. Um, And then After Hours was supposed to be directed by Tim Burton, but Tim Burton stepped aside and Scorsese kind of took an interest in it. Um, And Griffin Dunn is the star of it. And I think it was from Griffin Dunn's production company. He produced it as well. So it was kind of a story that he had uh, kind of burst himself. But it's very simple. Uh, Griffin Dunn is just kind of this, uh, you know, kind of normal, boring guy who lives and works in New York City and meets a girl in a diner uh, played by uh, Rosanna Arquette and then calls her that same night. And she says to come on down to Soho. Uh, And he does, but he loses, he has a $20 bill and it flies out the window in the cab. And so he's stuck down there. And then just a series of like crazy misadventures fall on him and all he wants to do is get home. Um, And so, I mean, it clearly a very influential film uh, in terms of uh, the, you know, a bunch of other films that follow that would kind of take that same premise and same story. But it's just these series of crazier and crazier mishaps and misadventures that are very funny, but also very darkly funny. The cast is pretty incredible. Uh, it's got Terry Garr, Catherine O'Hara, um, Linda Fiorentino in a really great role, John Hurd, um, even, uh, and Chong are in the movie. It's really strange. Um, but visually it's just kind of like a fever dream and you just have this tension throughout, even though it's a comedy, uh, and you can see how influential it has been on the careers of someone like Edgar Wright, who's taking comedy but using very meticulous visual language to tell that story.
0: Yeah, this is about as funny as well. I don't want to say like humor is not in other Scorsese movies because it is. But this <laughs> this is the one that's an out out and out comedy. Yeah, and it's still very dark and twisted.
1: Yeah, it's uh it's a uh, I would say it's a must watch. It's very breezy. Easy to watch, not, not like Raging Bull uh, or Taxi Driver. Um, it's just very fun. And I think Griffin Dunn is really charming in the lead role as well. Yeah. There's also – there's even like Scorsese did some uncredited work on the screenplay, but there's like a scene where Dunn is trying to get into a club and the doorman won't let him in. And the scene was apparently just written by Scorsese as an outlet for his frustration that like no one would let him make Last Temptation of Christ. Like he was obsessed with making Last Temptation of Christ and could not get it made to the point that he wrote a scene in this movie where someone's trying to get somewhere and someone won't let them in as like a thinly veiled account of his frustration and experiences.
0: Yeah. So yeah. After hours is, is one I, I definitely am looking forward to, to rewatching for sure. Um, then in 1986, you get a movie. I will say it's, I'll just go so far and say it's bad. I think the color of money
1: is bad. It's my least favorite Scorsese film. I think by, by a country mile,
0: like here's the, so it's a sequel to the film, the hustler, which I actually think is good. Um, where Paul Newman plays a pool hustler named Fast Eddie, and this sequel is Paul Newman is back, and then like he's sort of teaming up with a with a young stud played by Tom Cruise, and uh, none of it really works. <laughs> it's just like I don't know. It it feels like a little bitter, kind of like it feels like like it's trying to defend Fast Eddie, but like I don't know. It just it doesn't. It, nothing. It's not for a film that should be entertaining, given the pairing of Paul Newman and Tom Cruise and a Martin Scorsese film. Play in pool,
1: this film should be better, and it's not. Not even close. It feels like a paycheck, um, mm. is what it feels like. It, it's it's really disappointing, and it almost feels like almost anonymously directed. I've only ever seen it once, and I know Same. it has its defenders, but I was just really struck by how like unScorsese like it was. It was just kind of like anyone could have made this movie. Right, exactly. Which is not yeah, it's just sort it's just kind of there.
0: Yeah. <laughs> we don't have anything to say. I don't say have anything about. more to say. It's there. It exists. It is not essential Scorsese. It's not essential Tom Cruise. It's not essential Paul Newman. It's just there. Um you know, see it see it at your own leisure, I suppose. See it don't. Who gives a shit? <laughs> Who cares? What you should see is, is his next film, 1988's The Last Temptation of Christ, yes. which is very controversial. It was protested by, by, by Catholics, even though Martin Scorsese is Catholic, um, because it is a film that's really wrestling with the humanity of Christ. Uh, or of the person of Jesus, it it comes out in the front and says this is not drawn from gospel. It tells yeah. you that up front. It's like this is an i this is a way to engage with the gospels. I will also say there are points where I think it may it kind of goes too far. I mean, my wife is is Christian, and you know, I watched it recently with her, and and she made the good point like it's not great when you have Jesus making crucifixes. <laughs> <laughs> not great to say like Jesus was implicated in the thing that he you know like that sort of undermines the person of Jesus. But like, the thing is, is I think what the film is going for, and I think it can be a little messy on its way getting there is it's trying to get to the humanity of Jesus and all of his foibles. And that runs up against the popular conception of the perfect Jesus. And, you know, Jesus is an ideal and that makes a So of course this movie's going to piss people off. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's also really interesting. And I think it's, I like what it's trying to do, even though I think ultimately, in terms of its conversation with faith and the demands of faith, I think Silence does it better.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I think it's a very fascinating film, and I think mm-hmm. it's a really well-made film, and it's it's obviously a very passionately made film. And I agree with you. I think the most fascinating aspect of it is that it does try and get to the humanity of Jesus Christ, Um and it is a thought exercise, as you said. It's not purporting to be the gospel, um, but it's a thought exercise um, whose goal is to uh, more better understand Jesus and and uh, you know his sacrifice. And I think that's I think that's really interesting and really fascinating. And ballsy. Like again, like it's really hard to fathom the amount of controversy that this movie drummed up at the time, but it was insane.
0: It was. It was. It was a lot of content. There's a whole book on it. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, and I think the reason it kind of. Makes it out on the other side into something that I think is rewatched. Not like you want to chill out with Last Temptation of Christ, but something that you is you want to revisit and worth and engage with is I think it's that for Scorsese this is not a cynical ploy. This is not like I'm gonna make an edgy film about Jesus. Like Scorsese is a deeply religious person. Like he is someone who wrestles with Catholicism and he keeps wrestling with it throughout his career. And so. For him to make this art, you see him trying to work through some things. This isn't just... He's not try, he's not making this movie to push people's buttons. Even though he knew it would, he, that's not the reason for the film's existence. And that gives me some more respect for it. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then, you know, he follows that up with Goodfellas. Which I think is safe to say this will be... Like, when the obituaries on Scorsese are written, they will lead with Goodfellas. Like, that will be the film he will always be most closely associated with. Cause it is in a, in a, in a career filled with classics. I just feel like Goodfellas is Scorsese. Not Hugo? Not Hugo. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, here's another thing in our Scorsese podcast. We're not talking about all the work Scorsese has done to elevate other filmmakers. Like we're not talking about his world cinema project or his film restoration. Like Scorsese is all in on cinema way more than let's say the Russo brothers. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying if you want to talk shit about Scorsese, like come to play and look at the fact that like of all the fucking work he's done, like he's not, he didn't just make Goodfellas. His entire life has basically been devoted to cinema.
1: Yeah, uh, just looking at his list of documentary films that he's directed is it, like that's the like filmography of a full-time documentary feature filmmaker, and these were just side projects for him right. while he was doing other stuff. Uh, but yeah, Goodfellas is a masterpiece. It's it, it is epic in scope and yet like thrilling and breakneck pace and just a masterful, again, this is a, this is a thing I really love about Scorsese is his point of view, his ability to put you in the point of view of the character. And, uh, you know, that iconic sequence where Ray Liotta is trying to make pasta, but also trying to get these drugs and he's high on cocaine and there's a helicopter flying. You feel like you're on coke when you're watching that sequence. Yes.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's, it's again. And what I, what I like about it is that it is, a way for Scra- Scorsese to sort of thread the needle of sort of the glamour of this lifestyle while also never really condoning it. Yeah. Uh, again, re- retweets are not endorsement. It's, it's a film where, you know, Joe Pesci is so electric and so watchable, but he's a monster. Like he, he, he guns down poor Michael Imperioli. (laughs) Yeah. You know, like he is a monster and like, but like, that's the sort of the needle you have to thread with this film where it's like, you know, the, the consequences of these people and like, you know, they're gods in their own shitty little world and they're all living on borrowed time. And like Henry Hill is the one who finally realizes it when he has no other options left. And you know, for him, hell is suburbia. You know, yeah. he, he survives, but at what cost? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, it's... Uh, thank God, the filmmaking is just so visceral and fun and and thrilling. You know, when it gets off the witness stand in the courtroom and is talking directly to the camera, it's just so exciting. Like It's, it's a really just, exciting yeah, it's film. It's
0: just a fun film to watch. Like, that's the thing. Like, we had a nuclear take on the site recently that that argued that Dances with Wolves is better than Goodfellas, and you're welcome to believe that. It's, it's fine if, if you like... Dances with Wolves more than Goodfellas, but I think time has borne out that Goodfellas is the more important, more influential, and and more and richer film. It's the film that people want to engage with more. If we're just yeah. doing a basis of comparison of who won the Oscar in 1990,
1: yeah, uh, abundantly influential. Uh, you know, this came out in 1990. Reservoir Dogs was what 92? 92, 92, and, and if you want to talk about like the influence of Tarantino on cinema, I think you. I think Tarantino was also aided by the visceral filmmaking of Goodfellas as well. Uh, Not not in Tarantino's film, but in terms of like all of the imitators that came afterwards were pulling from Tarantino and a bit from Goodfellas. Because, you know, if you're going to do like, you know, a soundtrack uh, and popular songs that are diegetic and and running throughout a feature film, you look at Goodfellas too.
0: Right. Yeah. It's just, it's such a, I think, you know, like Reservoir Dogs, people like who try to imitate Goodfellas and do it poorly, they see all the glamour stuff and they see all the montages and they see all that. They see all the style, but they don't see the substance. And Goodfellas has the substance to back up everything that it's doing.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, And then so in 91, you get a remake of Cape Fear, uh, which is – so originally a film starring Robert Mitchum. The remake stars Robert De Niro – Uh, You saw this one recently and and actually talked about it and recently watched. It's fine. It's pretty good. It's kind of of like a standard like thriller. Like it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of like Scorsese, like after making Goodfellas, he's like, you know what? I'm going to take my foot off the gas and, and make one for old Marty. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Old Marty likes the original Cape Fear and he's going to make a new one with his buddy, (laughs) with his buddy,
1: Bobby De Niro. It's very clearly, uh, Hitchcock influenced. It's, it's Scorsese channeling Hitchcock, uh, to the point that there is a Bernard Horman score, Mm um, and interestingly enough, Spielberg was supposed to direct this, and Scorsese was attached to direct *Schindler's List*, and they traded projects whenever Scorsese understood how personal *Schindler's List* was to Spielberg. Um, so they just swapped, uh, and I think it was fairly late in the game. I think that you know development had already uh, been underway. Um, Cave Fear has, you know, a pretty big action set piece in the finale. That's a pretty big deal for Scorsese to be tackling. Um, not that the, he hadn't tackled, like, set pieces before. You know, the Goodfellas Copacabana is a set piece. But, uh, I don't know, it's interesting to see him working with a bigger budget on kind of a, a quote-unquote studio film um, like this. But its uh, I wouldn't say it's top tier. And, and I think De Niro's good, but it's it's that character a little goes a long way. And it's it's a tough sit to sit for it's a pretty long movie i think if... yeah
0: and it doesn't get any easier cuz if you've seen terror lake the episode of simpsons <laughs> or cape fear with an e at the end like it's hard to watch the film and stop not
1: start laughing <laughs>
0: at, the, at the simpsons parodies
1: well that was the problem i had when i was a kid i had seen uh mafia the oh, he... before i saw goodfellas or the godfather or the godfather part 2 so all of those movies were ruined for me which <laughs> uh... riches with his little orange smiley face <laughs> 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 i was like are there i was like all right well i think the old guy dies in the orange orchard but does he like oranges or something
0: <laughs> oh you didn't expect jane austen's mafia to come up in this podcast folks but it did it did, it did. Uh, so the next up, you have uh, Scorsese doing a period drama with The Age of Innocence. Um, that's I saw that earlier this year. I was kind of let down by it, to be honest. Um,
1: I've not seen Age of Innocence, so like, it's you have like good. I
0: mean, it's Daniel Day Lewis, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, um, like you know uh, Winona Ryder. It's it's a like it's very handsomely made. It doesn't. But I don't feel like there, there's there's too heavy a reliance on narration. I think I believe is based on a book by Edith Wharton, and I think what it's trying to do is kind of be like a societal critique uh, mixed with a like a melodramatic love story, and it just doesn't get there. Like it's it's not a bad film. Like it's not like horrible. Like but it's just I don't. I don't think Scorsese gets it to where the film needs to be in terms of the storytelling. I think it's a little too self-conscious and doesn't have that sort of um, confidence that you see in other Scorsese films.
1: Yeah, uh, it's one I'm interested in because I just don't know. Like, what is a Scorsese? Is it a is Age of Innocence a romance or is it just a period drama? No, I mean it's a romance.
0: I mean it is a there. Yeah, I mean there's a strong like basically like there's the romance of like. Daniel Day-Lewis is supposed to be with Winona Ryder's character, but he starts falling for Michelle Pfeiffer's character. And like, so he's torn between her and there's society and, you know, what? who <laughs> should be doing what? And it's just like, uh, no, it's not working for me.
1: And it, it, it should be noted that Scorsese is also a screenwriter. He co-wrote this one with Jay Cox, uh, with whom he co-wrote Silence. And he co-wrote Goodfellas and Casino with Nicholas Pileggi, And he co-wrote Mean Streets. Uh, and those are all the official credited ones. But he he does writing on a lot of his films, if not all of them. Yeah. So just an FYI. Yes. Um, And then so
0: in, in 95, uh, he follows it up with Casino. And I think the... The worst thing you can say about Casino is that it is not Goodfellas, which to me is the best. Like if a lot of films aren't Goodfellas, Casino comes very close to being Goodfellas, which is tough. It is just Goodfellas is a very hard act to follow for your like Casino is the next gangster film. It's also epic in length. It's again, it's De Niro and Pesci. Um, But Casino, taken on its own merits, Casino is awesome. It's just don't compare it to Goodfellas. I don't love Casino. You don't love Casino? Oh, I, I have, don't. Oh, casino is a lot of fun. <laughs> I really so, enjoy Casino.
1: I enjoy Casino. My problem with Casino is that Sharon Stone's character is so insufferable and terrible. But for two and a half hours, you're meant to believe that De Niro's character still like really wants to be with her and loves her. Mm. And so it's just constantly her screaming or crying or yelling or running away or doing something terrible. Um, I mean, from the moment it's it's established that like you know she keeps going back to her pimp played by James James Woods, it's like oh something's up with that, and it never really investigates like what is up with her, like why is it that she is continuously drawn to this James Woods character, even as she's kind of being given the world by Robert De Niro's character. And I'm not saying Robert De Niro's character is a good guy. It's just in practice, it's kind of like the Willy Loman problem from Temple of Doom. It's just not super. It's not a great hang. It's not super fun. <laughs> to hang out with that character. And I say that e- even also recognizing that I think Sharon Stone gives a really great performance. I mean, it's a, it's a testament to performance, to her performance that I am as annoyed and frustrated and angered by that character as I am.
0: That, that is a fair assessment. I still think Casino is a fun hang. Um, I don't get as bothered by that character, by the Sharon Stone character, as you do. Yeah. So for me, like the the political intrigue of Vegas, of like, you know... Of the casino world, like that, that kind of just works for me.
1: I will say, I, I do really like the how the film investigates violence in a way that Goodfellas, I mean Goodfellas does, um, but the violence in Casino is very very rough and and I think it's more striking because De Niro's character is not a quote unquote mobster, um, and so his character is is ostensibly the protagonist he's not seen actively killing or hurting people um you know really all he wants to do is run this casino uh and be famous for it uh but pesci's character is very scary in this movie and the violence he inflicts on others and the violence inflicted on him is incredibly striking um his scene with his brother towards the end
0: is oh in the field yeah oh it's rough
1: (laughs) and the film got an nc-17 and had to be cut for uh for violence reasons um it's rough. That that part of it is very, very rough. But I but mean... Casino, it, I'd it, say Casino's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> casino's awesome. Uh, See Casino. <sighs> it's okay. It's definitely <laughs> essential. It's top tier Scorsese. I yeah. just, in terms of like, I don't know, the the act of watching it. I'd, every every time I go... And I rewatch it recently because I hadn't seen it in a while. But I, I've seen it a number of times. But it's just... It's always tough for me. Whenever she comes back on the screen, I'm like, ugh. This again. Yeah. Go again.
0: All right, so now we get to the last film that I think neither of us have seen, which yeah. is Kundun. Kundun. Which
1: stop, stop Roger Deakins.
0: Yeah, all I can think about when I think of Kundun, I think of that Sopranos thing where Christopher is like, Marty, Kundun, I liked it. <laughs> 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 That's all, all I know. Um, I, I, you know, it's about the, um, the, what, the Dalai Lama.
1: Is yeah. Kundun. yeah. The 14th Dalai Lama, uh, exiled political and spiritual leader of Tibet. Um I've heard it's fairly episodic, but yeah, I don't really have anything to to add here because I I didn't see it.
0: It's also kind of hard to track down, to be honest. I don't think it's on any streaming service or it's
1: a little tough. Do you want to know why that is? Uh, Because of China? It's a Disney movie.
0: Oh, well, well then
1: <laughs> that explains it because of China and because it's a Disney movie. Well, that's a, that's uh, a, that's a good combination.
0: I don't see how yeah. that could affect it.
1: Holy shit. It was, it was produced by touchstone pictures and released by uh, Buena Vista pictures, which is Disney. And, uh, that explains why you're <laughs> not So you're, coming, not so any. you're saying
0: it's coming to Hulu never. <laughs>
1: yes, basically. Yeah. Cause I don't think it's ever been on Netflix. I, I can't, uh, I can't remember. Um, but uh yeah unless you just want to like blind buy it i it's not it's not like it's playing on cable very often
0: no not no no one wants to chill out with kundun yeah
1: so uh yeah i don't know uh exactly um oh well apparently in 1998 disney apologized for releasing the film and began to quote-unquote undo the damage eventually leading to a Deal to open shanghai disneyland by 2016 so it appears there's more to the kundun mystery all i know
0: is that kowtowing to china is always a good idea just really (laughs) sharp maneuvering uh google uh uyghurs (laughs) after you listen (laughs) to this podcast
1: yeah that's interesting i was just on wikipedia looking up uh, who released it and that uh, little nugget stood out all right so perhaps there's a little bit more there
0: Anyway, any who's <laughs> moving on, um, you get to 1999 bringing out the dead, which I think is one of the gems in Scorsese's career that again, like, like, um, uh, King of comedy was not really appreciated in its time, but uh, people have been like, oh, this film is actually pretty powerful.
1: Yeah. It's also a really rough hang.
0: <laughs> that is super rough hang. For those uh, who don't know, I- know, bring out the dead. Nicholas Cage plays uh, a paramedic, um, driving through new york um and uh it's rough man <laughs> like he's like it's he is like it's it's a film that's very like not only concerned with mortality but just it grinds away at you but it's really good
1: <laughs> it's very good but you know as written by paul schrader uh it's kind of a it's kind of a spiritual sequel to taxi driver i would say mm-hmm. or or similar in in um in ambition and uh kind of style to taxi drivers yeah
0: whereas i think yeah like whereas like taxi drivers sort of like violence turned outwards bring out the dead is kind of like a like a mental violence turn inwards
1: is the yeah way i would characterize it and the emotional toll that seeing people die every day takes on uh you know this overworked paramedic who's exhausted and uh it feels he's on a streak of losing people. Every person he's picking up is dying and he doesn't want to do it anymore and yet, is force to do it. There are these really surreal conversations he has with his boss where he's like asking his boss to fire him. He's like, I can't fire you today, but maybe tomorrow. <laughs> it just really, just really gets at your soul. <laughs> yeah. This guy who just can't get out of this job that he hates and is just haunted by the ghosts of all of the people that have died under his watch.
0: So it's just like it's a fun movie, just it's yeah, just, it's just, a fun, just really light, and I think you'll, I think uh, bringing out the dead, you'll enjoy
1: it. Yeah, fun stuff.
0: Uh, okay, so then in two thousand two, you get Gangs of New York, which I have very mixed feelings on.
1: I like Gangs of New York. Gangs of New York came out. Uh, I think it was the first new Scorsese movie released after I had kind of discovered Scorsese, mm-hmm. or, or like gone through his back catalog. Because I don't like I I was aware of Scorsese when Bringing Out the Dead came out, but I didn't see it because that movie kind of disappeared. But Gangs of New York was this big epic, uh, uh, you know, movie with the star of Titanic and you know Cameron Diaz, and he had built an entire city in Italy to shoot, and they had shot for like a year or a year and a half or something. It was this huge deal. And I was a little underwhelmed when I first saw it, but I, I, I have this strange fascination with it. Like I really I enjoy going back and watching it.
0: It's a f it's so much movie. It's it's a lot of movie. It's, it's a mini-series. A, it's today a, would be a miniseries. Exactly. It's today would be a mini-series. There are some elements of Kings of New York that I think are brilliant. I think Daniel Day Lewis is brilliant. I think the scene where Irish people are getting off the boat and going immediately
1: to the civil war is (laughs) and then dying and then dying is brilliant.
0: Like there's, there's stuff in there that totally works. There is also stuff in there that doesn't work at all. The romance between, uh, DiCaprio and Diaz's character falls
1: completely flat.
0: Yeah. Um, I also don't think their performances are, are particularly strong. Um, no,
1: I think DiCaprio was a little out of his depth with Daniel Day Lewis, just kind of. Like oh, Daniel
0: Day Lewis just being like one of the greatest <laughs> actors who ever lived. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, it's a tough one. I mean, but Gangs like, of New York is like so. There's just I, but for me, and maybe I need to revisit. I just feel like the film is too much. It's a film that I want to like, but because it's just so much film. And I can see the stronger aspects yearning to sort of break free of the weaker ones. It's a film that frustrates me a lot. I watch it and I'm like, this, this should be better. This should be this needs to be polished and tightened and like focused because there's something really good here, but we're not getting to it because I have to pretend that Diaz and DiCaprio are in love for some reason.
1: Well, it's also structurally, um, really strange. I mean, it's building up to this massive gang war and this, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis and Leonardo Cap going toe-to-toe. And then it's like, surprise, draft riots. And just cuts to a montage of the draft riots and just undermines this thing that you've been building towards throughout the, you know, two and a half hour running time. Uh, that doesn't happen because of the draft riots. Right. So it's, it's kind of, it's kind of a blue balls effect, um, but I think knowing where it goes, I don't know. I still really relish the scenes between DiCaprio and day Lewis and day day Lewis is mesmerizing in this movie. I think Brendan Gleason really gives a soulful performance in this film. Um, just a lot of the supporting performances, I think are really great. This is the year that John C. Riley was in like every single best picture nominee. I think. Yes. <laughs> he was in this in Chicago and, uh, gosh, he, what were the, other? he was the piano and the pianist. <laughs> yes. 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 He the played the piano. Force. Um, but I don't know. I mean, this was a this was a Miramax release, and there were reports of fights between Weinstein and Scorsese, and uh, the production like ran on way too long. Um, so I don't know if there's like a better version of the film in there somewhere mm-hmm. uh, or on the cutting room floor. I mean, it's got like the screenwriters on the film are Jaycock, Steven Zalian, who wrote Chandler's List, and Kenneth Lonergan, who's you know a genius. So they had some work done on it, but I don't know. I still enjoy it, and I like the music as well. Yeah, it's all right. It did. I mean, it was his first true, like I don't know. I haven't seen Kundun, but it feels like maybe it was his first true like period period epic. I mean, Last Temptation of Christ is an epic, maybe. I mean,
0: I I don't know. Age of Innocence is. I wouldn't say it's epic, but it's a period drama.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, This one just. I just remember, like on the DVD, there's the bonus feature where like he takes you around the set, and they literally built the five points in Italy, like just built it the whole fucking thing and you could go in any shop and it was built out it was crazy
0: money well spent <laughs> <laughs> um, then in 2004 the the relationship with DiCaprio continues uh, with the aviator which again is a film like the aviator is a movie I like it more than Gangs of New York but again it doesn't feel like it's all the way there um, it feels like it needs to be tightened. It, it, it's too much of a cradle-to-the-grave biopic. I think with, with Howard uh, Hughes, there's enough in his life that happened that you could have just focused on one thing, and it decides to focus on all the things. Um, I also think DiCaprio is too young for the role. Um, if you're going to tell it in the cradle-to-the-grave style, when it's time for him to be the older uh, Howard Hughes, it, he doesn't sell it. He's too young to sell what needs to be there. Um, but there are other ele- but again, like way, way of the future, way of the future. Wait, like there's stuff in there. That's really good. So I, I don't dislike the aviator, but I don't think it works as well as it could.
1: Yeah, the cinematography on it is astounding. Uh, and his decision to shoot each sequence the way it would have been shot in that time period, I think, was a really brilliant choice. I think with The Aviator and Games of New York, uh, I mean, my conjecture is is he finally decided he, he kind of wanted to win an Oscar, which he had not won before. Um, maybe spurred by Spielberg winning Best Director in 98 for Saving Private Ryan and, and Scorsese kind of feeling um, uh, like he was, he was the last of his buddies not to win an Oscar. <laughs> Yeah, so because uh, the that was my I remember when I saw the Aviator, it just felt like a movie that really wanted to win Oscars, and it won a couple, but it didn't win uh, director or picture. Um, uh, you know, Cate Blanchett won for Katherine Hepburn, um, and I think it won cinematography, of course. But I don't know. I like the Aviator. I agree that it's you know not great as a Cradle to Grave, but for that period of time, Cradle to Grave was just the way you made biopics. So. I didn't have a huge problem with it. Um, but I would agree that I think DiCaprio is a little too young for it. He It is a better performance than Games of New York, and I think it's vital to his uh, career as a performer. Uh, I mean, you can kind of see his evolution throughout those years. But um, I don't know. I like The Aviator, aviator all right, but it's definitely middle tier Scorsese. Yeah. Uh, then we get to the film that did win Scorsese his Oscar. <laughs> and the, he wasn't even trying. Wasn't even trying. The Departed. He said he was just trying to make a commercial movie that would uh, be successful and folks would have fun at. And, 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 <laughs> I, and, and honestly, it was successful at that, too. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, I, you know, I think Departed's kind of gotten a bit of a bad rap because of it won Oscars. Like, it, therefore, it was given more import than it should have been, I guess, is how the argument goes. Yeah. Um, I think The Departed is great. I think it's like a, like, yes, it is commercial and yes, it is entertaining, but I think watching these converging storylines, I think it's just a, I think it's one of the best crime dramas of the decade without a doubt. Yeah. Um, I think the whole cast is at the top of their game. I think William Monahan's script is very sharp. Um, it's a remake of a, of a Hong Kong film called, uh, infernal affairs. um, but I I really like it. It's I the part of it is really good. It's got a great emotional heft to it. Um, it works. It really works very well. Is it as good as Goodfellas? No, but it's still a really good movie.
1: It's super fun uh, and it really moves and it's really surprising. I mean I, God, I remember being in the theater and just wondering like what the hell happened when. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm All not right, going mean, to say it. Fuck it. If no. you haven't seen
0: Departed, that one I won't ruin. I've ruined yeah. everything else from <laughs> filmography But that one's too good. That one's too good. I know <laughs> what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, it's insane. And it, and you're like, is there a movie left? <laughs> like, what's going on? Yeah. How does the, how uh, do
0: we go from here?
1: Yeah, I think the performances, especially from. DiCaprio and Damon, I think, are really terrific. And yes. I remember being super annoyed that year that DiCaprio didn't get nominated for this movie, but he got nominated for fucking Blood Diamond, which is not a very good movie. No, it's not. Um, or
0: a good performance from DiCaprio. He's much better in, in Departed.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, ironically, the only actor of this movie to get an Oscar nomination was Mark Wahlberg <laughs> for supporting actor. Uh, but he does have he does have a good, he does have the best line in the film though. So. He does. Yes, the interplay between him and Alec Baldwin is is incredible, um, and I think Jack Jack Nicholson. He gives an interesting performance. Oh, I th- Nicholson's <laughs> just having fun. Nicholson's got nothing to prove at this point. Well, and that's kind of my problem with it, mm-hmm. is that it does feel like he's kind of railroading Source easy a bit, which is mm. kind of frustrating. Um, is that what but... I think every time you see that nodding Nicholson? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although I think that give is from, uh, isn't that one from the movie you did with Adam Sandler?
0: Oh, is Ang- it from Anger, Anger Management? Man. Yeah. Freaking Nicholson in this time period
1: (laughs) he was doing weird shit uh, all the time um but yeah the departed is the goods uh i am not mad that it won best picture i'm not mad that it won best director um that scorsese deserve it for other films of course but that's not the way the oscars work so um yeah i think i think departed is is top tier scorsese yeah i i totally um
0: and then, so four years later, you get uh, Shutter Island, which I think is. I think Shutter Island is great. I think Shutter Island, honestly, I think it was a victim of a release schedule thing. I think if it had been released at the end of 2010 instead of the beginning. Like, it was released in, like, February of 2010. Yeah. Um, I think it had been released later, it would have been had a much stronger play in the Oscar conversation. Maybe it's not, like, a a Best Picture winner, but the craft is phenomenal. And the performances are very strong. It's, like, a really good kind of thriller drama. Like, I think Shutter Island, like, and yeah, like, you you can kind of tell what the twist is, but... I still like it. I think Shutter Island's underrated. And actually today I got an email that they're doing a 10th anniversary 4K. And I'm like, yes, yes, please, yeah. to that. Because I think Shutter Island's kind of underrated.
1: Yeah, I mean, to Paramount's credit, by moving it to February, it, it made almost $300 million. Which oh, is so you are just did it for the money, I see. <laughs> yes exactly but i agree i think the craft in that movie is phenomenal and and just the fact that every single scene had to be shot so that it could work on two different levels at the same time uh I think that as an exercise I think was interesting for Scorsese and I think he pulled it off really well. Uh it's been a little while since I've seen it. It's also a really depressing movie. <laughs> oh,
0: it's so depressing.
1: <laughs> oh you- man,
0: it'll bum you the fuck out, but it's yeah. so good. It's so <laughs> it's, good. That Max Richter score. Oh, so good. Yeah.
1: It's uh it's a huge fucking bummer. Um But yeah, they uh, they, and I think you you know use the they use that Max Richter song. But I think what was interesting about it is that he he mainly used just modern classical music Mm -hmm. um, for the score instead of going for a traditional score. Right. Uh, And DiCaprio is really good in the film as well. I think so. Yeah, you can you can finally feel like DiCaprio is now reaching the point where he's old enough
0: to play these roles.
1: Yeah. So. It's a, it's kind of a strange oddity and, and the four year gap between Departed and Shutter Island Was the longest gap between movies Maybe in Scorsese's career or at least until I'm looking at the, the numbers now I think that was the longest he had gone without releasing a movie A new feature? Uh, yeah and I can't remember if he was developing Something that didn't hit At that time I know he'd been trying to get Silence done um, Yeah I don't know But uh, I need to look into that. But um, I like Shutter Island. I enjoy it. I think it's a good film. Yeah.
0: Um, Okay, so then uh, in 2011, you have Hugo.
1: (laughs) 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 Awkward silence. I I will say, I read an interview with Scorsese around the time that he made Silence, and he was throwing some shade, I think, at Graham King, who was the producer on Hugo, um, basically acknowledging i'm gonna get it i'm gonna i'm not gonna be able to like full quote it but uh, it always stuck with me that he said something to the effect of like he he felt like he had been kind of roped into making films that he didn't really want to a couple of films that he didn't really want to make and uh, he felt like his time was kind of running out and he wanted to make meaningful films he was saying this around the time of silence and looking back it it feels like the only films that would fit into that at all would be shutter island and and hugo which i could see that with shutter island because it's just kind of a standard thriller um and if he wants to spend his time you know his last however many movies he probably wants to make stuff like silence not necessarily stuff like shutter island hugo was his first kids movie and he did have a young kid at the time um and so maybe he just wanted to attempt that I think from a visual standpoint, it's it's interesting. I mean, this was around the time of the 3D craze, so he was playing around with 3D and saying crazy shit. Like, you know, I'm going to release all my movies in 3D from now on, which didn't happen. Um, but yeah. <laughs> as a story, I mean, obviously he had to go with – he had to throw in the, the whole cinema angle of it, which I think is what makes the movie – as substantial as it is. It uh,
0: makes it substantial, but it also
1: feels like
0: your uncle Marty is here going to lecture you about lecture you about film preservation. There's yeah. literally one scene where someone just stops the movie cold to tell you about the importance of film preservation. It's yeah. so awkward. Like, and, and I agree with the message, but as terms, in terms of storytelling, it's very awkward.
1: Yeah, it's fine, but very forgettable. And I, I, <laughs> I haven't revisited it since it was in theaters, but it was very specifically made for 3D. So I don't even know. Right, exactly. Like
0: there's a scene where like Sasha Baron Cohen basically just comes out of the, of the screen. Like he's yeah. bearing down on Hugo. Like his face is like bearing down and like Scorsese goes for a perspective shot. And it's like it makes it look like his nose is coming out of the screen. So for a film that's like made for 3D, and that's been such a problem with 3D. Like there's no, like, oh, 3D is everything. And we had all these movies made in 3D. And it's like, well, guess what? Now they're not as good anymore because no one has 3d televisions like, so now they just, they're this weird thing. Anyway, enjoy avatar too, is what I'm saying. (laughs) Enjoy the avatar sequels. Um, so yeah, uh, Hugo. Yeah. I didn't really care for it. I was annoyed when it went, when it was nominated for best picture. I was really annoyed when it beat rise of the planet of the apes for best special effects. (laughs) Um, but so it goes. Um, all right, so then 2013, you have The Wolf of Wall Street, which I think has easily one of DiCaprio's best performances, if not his best performance to date.
1: Yeah, uh, and it's uh, another example of retweets do not equal endorsements. Yes, I think exactly. That, <laughs> I think that film is is very good at uh, digging into kind of the life of excess of the 80s, uh, and I did not really understand the criticisms that it was glorifying this lifestyle.
0: I think there are two criticisms that I would I think are worth exploring. One is that Belfort gets money from... Like, the fact that he gets any piece of Wolf of Wall Street. And you can be like, well, it goes to his victims. I'm like, does it, though? You know, like, I mean, how does that work, I guess, is what I'm saying. Because at the end of the day, even if the money directly from the film goes to Belfort, Belfort is then able to trade off the film for new projects. So, I don't know. It just by using a real guy and using his book and the book is unreadable by the way. I tried reading the book. The book is like the movie kind of makes fun of that, but like Belfort in his own voice thinks he's amazing. Um, and clearly has very little contrition for anything that he did. Um, the other point is sort of like the indictment of America that feels a little tone deaf because like that closing scene of like, ah, everyone wants to be rich. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there are people that want to be rich. They there are people that like want that the the riches that we see and that excess. They want it. But that it strikes me as a little tone deaf coming relative like only 5 years after the financial crash where people just wanted to have jobs. So to be like, ah, if you had, you know, I don't know. It doesn't it doesn't quite work with me for me. But I do think the film overall is a pretty good indictment of a of the sort of the Wall Street culture. Um, but I think it might expand its gaze too far to indict pe- the average American, if that makes any
1: sense. Yeah, I would disagree slightly on the want to be rich thing, because I always read that as want to be successful. And, and uh, I, I don't know. Like, I don't think it's just about the money. I think it's you okay. want you want my life. You want the life that I have, the life of –
0: But the um, life is defined by money. The
1: life is defined by money, but I feel like it's more – I don't know how to explain it. it. To To me, it felt a little bit separated from the money aspect of it, like the freedom to do whatever the fuck you want with no consequences, which again is intrinsically tied to the money. So maybe it's the same thing. But to me, it always read as a little as, – as an indictment of kind of like I want that lifestyle as opposed to like I just want to be a rich person. Because Jordan is just like flashing his lifestyle all over the place and and in front of the FBI and everything. I also think uh, DiCaprio gives one of his best performances of his career in this movie. Um, Oh, it's so good. It's hilarious. Like it's a really great comedic performance. The physical comedy when he's on the Quaaludes and trying to get to his car is so funny. And I think really <laughs> is. when he's trying, he's yelling at him on the phone, telling him to get off the phone, uh, the fight between him and uh, Jonah Hill. And I think Jonah Hill, I think, is uh, really good in this movie as well, which I never really quite understood Jonah Hill's Oscar nomination for Moneyball. Um, That one made no sense to me. I get it for Wolf of All. Yeah. Like I hadn't, I did not make any sense to me in Moneyball. It was just kind of like a really quiet performance. It's just like head nodding. Um, But here I thought it was a really good performance. Um, But also I think this film leads into the Irishman, which we will talk about on the next podcast. Um, Paramount mandated that this movie be three hours or less. It could not be any longer than three hours long. And that's why the movie is three hours on the dot. And there was talk of, there was a four hour cut. you know, this movie spent a long time in the editing room as he was trying to, um, cut it down and get it to where it needs to be. And I think it's a really, really great film as is, but I would be curious to know, uh, what that longer version looked like.
0: Same, same.
1: Um,
0: and then, so, and then three years later, well, three years, I, I, (laughs) do you count vinyl, the pilot of vinyl as a movie? (laughs) it's like two hours. I do. And it's one of
1: the worst things he's ever done.
0: I've never seen it. Cause everyone says it's fucking terrible.
1: It's really like shockingly anonymous. And even the cinematography is not very good. Uh, it's bad, but it is like, it's two hours. It's a feature, like it's feature length. Um, you know, the, the sets and the scope of it are not as big as uh, something else. And he also shot the pilot for boardwalk empire, um, which was better but I didn't love that show either. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Oh, maybe that's what he was doing. That break between the departed and shutter Island. Cause I think, uh, I think the pilot for uh, boardwalk empire was in 2010, but anyway, yeah, the, the vinyl pilot is two hours long and it's not very good.
0: Yeah. So. Well, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> um, then we get to silence and silence is so fucking good. And I'm so angry that more people didn't see it, and I get why people didn't see it, but it makes me angry because it's a really thoughtful, mature exploration of faith because like the plot of the film is you have these Jesuit priests who go, and yes, they they're they're not Portuguese, they maybe should have cast Portuguese actors, but i'm I can live with that i'm but I, you know what I'm not of Portuguese descent, so it's not for me to fucking say. Any way, they go to Japan to find their lost mentor, and what makes it so interesting is they encounter Japanese Christians who are being persecuted. And the the question the film raises is, what is the cost of your faith? That are you willing to make other people bear? It's very easy to be like, I will be the martyr, I will be the, the Christ figure. But what are you saying if you are asking other people to do it? And it's really heavy. Uh, but it's very it's it, I mean Rodrigo Prito was the cinematographer the cinematographer's cinematography is amazing. the performances are so strong I just I was very moved by silence.
1: yeah it's uh, it's an incredible film that sadly not a ton of people will see. It's difficult subject matter. It's not told in a super like palatable manner <laughs> like it's a very patient quiet film. Uh, I think Andrew Garfield and Adam driver give a pair of just phenomenal performances. Um, And I think it's one of absolutely one of Scorsese's best. I would put it above departed. um, I would too. above Wolf of wall street. Probably it's yeah. It's one of the most challenging films he's ever made. And it does feel like him wrestling with his face. Like if, if the Irishman feels like a conclusion to uh, his kind of gangster saga, um, in a much more meditative, reflective way, silence feels like a conclusion to his explorations of faith in cinema and, uh, a similarly more reflective, more mature way.
0: Yeah. It's a really powerful film. And I, I really, if you didn't give it a chance, like I'm, it's not going to entertain you like the departed. I'll say that right now. Although it is very... entertaining.
1: No one calls anyone a cocksucker, but you know.
0: Yeah, no, there's there is, a, there is a Japanese guy that keeps screwing them over that's pretty entertaining. <laughs> yeah.
1: There's not the witty banter, or the witty expletive-laden banter of Mark Wahlberg and Alec Baldwin. No,
0: that's true. But uh, yeah, Silence is very good. Yeah. Um, and that will bring us in our next episode to The Irishman. So that is our long discussion of Scorsese. Um, one thing I did want to ask you, and know, we didn't talk about this before we started recording, but I am, I am curious now, what is your favorite Scorsese film?
1: Oof. I mean, Goodfellas is one of my favorite films of all time, but it also just feels so obvious and feels so Mm. like college movie poster on your bedroom. (laughs) Um, I I don't know. I think it I think it probably would be Goodfellas because that is also a film that to me really opened up the world of cinema and like filmmaking to me. Like, Mm. oh, this is really interesting and this. Oh, this is like, oh, he's talking to the camera. Are you allowed to do that? Um, And obviously Scorsese was Scorsese was pulling from other influences, but it it was an influential film on me in terms of opening my eyes to, uh, um, you know, challenging movies beyond like Mrs. Doubtfire and stuff that I was watching when I was a kid. Yeah. Um,
0: For me, it's Goodfellas as well. I just it is his best. Copycat. I know. But there's so many good ones in there. And I think he's such a rich, interesting filmmaker. Um, and I, the, you know, something that really amazes me about him is like, you know, he's like what in his, his seventies now. And, um, he's still knocking it out of the park, man. Like there are a lot of directors. And, like, the older they get, the weaker their material gets. Like, And, and they're, they were directors who were, like, like John Carpenter was knocking it out of the park in the 80s. And Rob Reiner, like, made was making classics left and right. And now those dudes don't make shit. Yeah. Or what they do make is terrible. And Scorsese is just over here still making outstanding movies. Like, The Irishman will, in all likelihood, be nominated for Best Picture as well it should be.
1: Yeah. You know? It's a masterful film. And you know, he's next, he's doing something completely different. Killers of the flower moon, which is about like native American culture in the early days of the FBI.
0: Yeah. It's exciting. Different. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, so, uh, no recently watched in this episode, it'll be in our next episode, which we will, we will talk, it'll be later this week. And, uh, we'll be talking solely about the Irishman because there is a lot to talk about with that one. So much. It's very exciting. Uh, So if you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next time.